Welcome to Episode 4 of Jesus and the Meteorologist. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and I'm your host. Our subject is discernment, and our aim is to teach, to elevate your minds and to exalt your courage, to accelerate and animate your industry and activity, and to excite in you an ambition to excel in every capacity, faculty, and virtue. Our mission is to inspire young men and women and their parents to understand the present in order to prepare for the future, a task that necessarily demands a proper interpretation of the past. Our aim is to highlight the antithesis between the way of the Lord and the ways of the world, between the truth of Scripture and the opinions of men, so that we might reflect the light of life in a culture of death. In our continual effort to drive home our mission, let me once again remind our audience that the title of our program, Jesus and the Meteorologist, draws its inspiration from Scripture, in particular the accounts found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, where Jesus rebukes his accusers for their unbelief, calling them hypocrites for depending on God's revelation to predict the weather while ignoring God's revelation to interpret the signs of the times. As detailed in episode 2 and as summarized in the introduction to episode 3, knowledge of God is inescapable. Yet, while all people operate according to God's revelation, many obviously pretend otherwise, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness in order to rob glory from God presuming their own autonomy so as to avoid responsibility to their Creator. But every one of us is culpable, and we'll explore this subject from many different angles throughout all of our programs. If you have any questions about what we mean, and to the extent that we have not addressed your question in another episode, or if you'd like to discuss in more detail a topic previously addressed on this program, we would encourage you to send them to questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com. And let me spell that for you. Questions at I-C-E-B-E-R-G-S-N-O-T-S-N-O-W-F-L-A-K-E-S dot com. That's questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com. Last week in episode three, we addressed how to discern the future of America by using analogs, discussing whether there was a connection, a cause and effect, between the character of the colonists and the resulting condition of the nation they founded, And, if that causal connection could be established, what then does the character of our contemporaries portend for our future? If you would like to hear how we address that topic, you can find all that and a bag of chips, or maybe we should say here a bag of frozen Kit Kats, in Episode 3. When we return, I'll be joined in the studio by friends and some former students of mine who volunteered to enter our Offices of Hypothesis, a virtual room for our listeners, but a real room here in the studio where we confront the ultimate questions. So I wrote a little book all the way back in 2009 to address what was happening in America and what was likely to happen if we did not take corrective action. Unfortunately, too many of my predictions are coming true. The only surprise is the speed at which we have reached the precipice. The title of that little book is The Experts, and you can buy it on our webpage. Just go to JesusAndTheMeteorologist.com, click the image of the little brown book, and we'll send it to you for only $9.99. And then be sure to let me know what you think. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologist, a weekly squidget devoted to the topic of discernment. I'm your host, Kevin Kukaji, and today we are joined again by three youthful guests, 
whose real names and identities shall remain confidential, but whose stage names are... Penelope. Hogan. And Roger. Penelope, Hogan, and Roger, welcome back. Thank Again. you for having us. Again. Love Thank and you. hugs to your parents, too, and your families for letting us uh, not only steal you away, but steal you away from your chores, probably. You told them where we were going, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let me remind our audience uh, that all of our students selected for this program are what we like to call icebergs. They are most definitely not snowflakes. In episode three, we touched upon some of the distinguishing characteristics of icebergs. Among other things, they're marked by a deep and impenetrable core. What appears above the surface is supported by an immovable integrity below the surface. Snowflakes, on the other hand, are fragile. They might be beautiful and they may appear intelligent superficially, but they are subject to melting and dissolution under the slightest rise in temperature. As we say, snowflakes may sparkle when left undisturbed, but they are no match for the titanic challenges of reality. Icebergs, on the other hand, including our icebergs here today, are men and women who can withstand the withering heat of attacks against their positions without losing the integrity of their condition or the courage of their convictions. So let's now move these icebergs into the... This week's hypothesis. You cannot have moral courage without God's revelation. You cannot have moral courage without God's revelation. I'm going to ask the ladies first, or our female guest, is this hypothesis true? Why or why not? True. Penelope says true. Hogan? True. Roger? True as well. Okay. So, Penelope, reasons? Because without God's revelation, we cannot distinguish what is right and wrong. And so we cannot have any... um... Do you want some help from Hogan or Roger to help you finish your sentence? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Yes. Hogan? Well, I was going to say, like I did say true, but I think it's possible to think that you can have it without God's revelation. But in reality, you can't because without God, you can't know what is good and you it doesn't work. Okay, so Hogan has addressed the concept of self-deception. One could... So you agree with the hypothesis, you cannot have moral courage without God's revelation, but you acknowledge that some people think they can have moral courage without God's revelation. Correct. Which we'll get into. Good. Roger? I agree that... Um... You can't have moral courage without God's revelation because all truth comes from God. Um, So without Christ or absent Christ, how can you know what is true? And how can you do what is good, what is true, what is moral if you don't have God? So we're talking about standards then as well. Yes. Right, to measure that. Uh, Before I go into a little background, Penelope, does this help you finish your thought or did you have more to add? I didn't want to cut you off, but I was trying to help. No, that was pretty much what I was going to say. I just got caught up. Okay. Well, to help our icebergs and our audience analyze this hypothesis, let's provide a little landscape for background. Last week, I briefly introduced the concepts of moral clarity and moral force, but we left a lot on the table, so I wanted to return to those concepts today to examine how they are interlinked. We explained that moral force, or what we might also call moral courage, is a commitment to acting on the knowledge of what is true. Again, a commitment to acting on the knowledge of what is true. So it's active. An example of moral courage might be a boss who discovers that his favorite employee 
maybe the one who gets all of the annual Best Employee Awards and is known and loved around the office, has been stealing money from the company for 10 years. Although it would be easier, perhaps, and less confrontational, less awkward to confront the theft privately and allow the employee to keep his job without telling anyone what happened, to terminate the favorite employee in this situation would actually take moral courage. That is, once the boss had knowledge of the employee's corruption, the boss had then had a duty to his company, to the other employees, and for the ultimate good of the dishonest employee, and to God, who sees all and before whom we must all give account, to make a distinction between honest behavior and dishonest behavior. Failure to act, on the other hand, if the boss just let the dishonest employee keep his job, despite the employee's blatant lack of integrity, would undermine trust with the other employees. It could enable the sin of the dishonest employee and would be disobedient to the Lord, who requires that we maintain order and justice under his authority. So moral courage is the commitment to acting on the knowledge of what is true. So back to the students then. Where does this moral courage come from? It comes from God. Hogan? I would agree with that. Uh, it comes from God in the Bible. Penelope? I was going to say the same thing. It comes from God. So you would probably agree we can't get moral courage from a vending machine? No. Unfortunately. Can we buy it on Amazon or have it delivered to our door? No. Jeff Bezos' wish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you learn it by pouring over a plethora, a big bundle of information? No. 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 A lot of people think they can learn by acquiring mm-hmm. information. Okay. So when you say it comes from God, what does that mean? What does it mean to simply say, that's not, and I would agree that it does come from God, but I think we have to defend and explain our position, not just assert it. Well, one thing that you could say it comes from God is God is the ultimate example. So throughout scripture, God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, which is God throughout all scripture, um, Jesus always spoke the truth. He always did what was right. Usually when everyone, usually when the Pharisees or the Sadducees were trying to get him to do something else, were trying to trick him into doing something else, he would still do what is right. So that's one way to look at it by saying that it comes from God is Christ says to do what he does and he shows moral courage. Okay. So in that context, when you say you would learn moral courage from the Bible, is it accurate for me to describe that as following Jesus, right? Following his biographical example, exactly watching what he does. Okay. That's one way. Hogan, anything else to add or disagree? You're, You're permitted to disagree on this program, by the way. Um, I feel like you can get it from surrounding yourself by good friends that are Christians as well and are just strong in their faith because it, they just encourage you and um, help you along in the process. Okay. What if they, what if your Christian friends start committing sins? Well, right. That's, that would be where the problem would lie. So then how do you make a distinction between when your Christian friends are doing what would encourage moral courage versus what would discourage moral courage? Well, I feel like when you're always going down a path like that or doing something wrong, you always know that's wrong because God's voice in your head is always telling you that it's not right. And it's whether we choose to listen to it or ignore it. Okay. So God's voice in your head 
as distinguished from some other voices in our heads, right? Because mm-hmm. the devil also works in yes. our heads and society and culture and social media can work in our heads and tell us that they're God. So how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? How do we make sure that we are hearing from God in our head? We compare it to Scripture. Compare it to Scripture, right? It's the ultimate standard. It's the only special revelation, the only written word of God. Perhaps it would help to state and help you in your thinking that moral courage derives from, or we can say it's a byproduct of, moral clarity. Moral clarity must come first, and we could say that moral clarity then is the precondition to moral courage, or that moral courage is necessarily dependent upon moral clarity, which of course begs the question, what is moral clarity? Penelope, I wanted to give you more of an opportunity this week. Do you want some help on moral clarity? Because sometimes it's helpful to explain something best by illustrating what it is not, right? By using opposites. So let me start there. Moral clarity is not the same as visual clarity. When we say that to demonstrate moral courage, you must first have moral clarity, we don't mean that you must see something clearly, at least not in the literal sense of the word to see with your eyes. A man can see a ship on the horizon but have no idea where it is going if his beliefs are wrong. If he believes the world is round, the man is unmoved by the disappearance of the ship. He knows or he can discern where the vessel is going. But if the man believes the world is flat, he likely panics and sets into motion all manner of ridiculous responsive actions, like calling his congressmen to seek legislation to ban ships from sailing toward the edge of the earth, or perhaps banning children from swimming for fear of an undertow that would suck them to their peril over the edge of the horizon, or even banning the building of ships altogether under the theory that if ships aren't constructed, well, they can't sail, and if they can't sail, they cannot ever get close to the horizon. And if they can't get close to the horizon, they obviously cannot fall off of it. So moral clarity is more than visual clarity, and moral clarity is also the precondition to moral courage. They are linked, you see. So in our illustration, your knowledge of the true condition of the ship near the horizon, that is, your ability to discern what really happens next, has nothing to do with what you see. It has everything to do with what you believe. And if you believe what is true... Indeed, only when you believe what is true, in this case, that the earth is a sphere, only then can you see things as they really are and not just as you or some authority figure may wish them to be, thereby providing a basis for avoiding or at least significantly diminishing the chances of bad outcomes. So, we've laid the foundation for the concept of moral courage, and we have now hopefully adequately explained its connection to and dependence upon moral clarity. But this begs yet another, and really the most ultimate question. For my students, where does one get moral clarity? I feel like you get moral clarity... Wait a second, I've got to interrupt Hogan now. I've listened to Hogan now come into every one of his answers beginning like this. I feel like... like... (laughs) And this is good, we can keep this in the recording because it's a good teachable moment. We should never be concerned... Well, if you're feeling sick, you should always talk about feeling Mm -hmm. sick. Um, but it's more important to know what you think and more uh, important to know what is objectively true, um, regardless of what our feelings or thoughts are about the matter. Because, well, say, for example, the ship on the edge of the ocean, ocean, I could feel that it's going to fall off the edge of the earth and be entirely wrong, right? I could think it's going to go off the edge of the earth and be entirely wrong. 
So, Hogan, thank you very much for giving us this teachable moment. Now my question is, where does one get moral clarity? Moral clarity comes from God, and you can't know what is moral, like we said, without God when we talked about moral courage. So God has to give you the clarity to see uh, what is moral. Right. If moral courage is the commitment, let's go in sequence here to line them up. So if moral courage is the commitment to act upon the knowledge of the truth, and if this action isn't possible unless somebody knows the truth, right, unless you know the truth, which we define as moral clarity, how then do you acquire moral clarity? In other words, how do you know what is true? As Hogan was saying, we cannot know what is true without God's revelation. So, is our hypothesis true? Is it possible? Let me go back to make sure I state it right. You cannot have moral courage without God's revelation. True or false? True. True. It's not possible, right? Any disagreements? No. No, I agree. The revelation of God is the precondition. This is what we mean when we say, and we'll say it over and over again. The revelation of God is the precondition for the intelligibility of anything. Unless you know the God of Scripture, you cannot know anything. As we've explained before, everyone knows the God of Scripture in the sense that everyone uses the same universal concepts, like the laws of nature, the laws of logic, uniformity of matter, reliability of memory, and other invariant, immaterial, yet absolutely necessary concepts in order to make life and our experiences intelligible. Sometimes we refer to this inescapable knowledge of God as natural revelation, which, by the way, is not to be confused with natural theology, but that's a topic for another episode. Sometimes we call this common grace. It's available to all of God's creation and distinguished from God's special revelation, which is found only in the scriptures, the word of God. But of course, many will say, I don't believe in God or any God for that matter, and yet I can make sense of my experiences. To this we confess with a shout out to Phineas and Ferb. Why, yes, yes, you do. You don't put your hope in Christ, the God of Scripture, and you may think yourself autonomous, without evidence, by the way, and that you or your perspective is the measure of all things. But self-deception is real, and it's incredibly powerful, blinding you to the reality that unless the world is what God says it is in the Scriptures, unless we are who God says we are, and unless all things are what God asserts them to be in the Word, and unless all things are held together according to the counsel of His will, then you, Mr. Unbeliever, cannot account, according to your own belief system, for why you can make sense of your experiences. The question is not that you can make sense of your experiences, but why you can do so. And to that question, the unbeliever has no coherent answer. The answer to our hypothesis then is, if it is impossible to show moral courage without moral clarity which we have demonstrated. And if it is impossible to have moral clarity without God's revelation, which we have also proven, it is therefore impossible to have moral courage without God's revelation. And by the way, does anyone know what we define or how we define the opposite here? How would you describe a person who lacks moral clarity? Penguin's goal horn for anyone who gets this answer right. Tick-tock clock. Uh... Moral unclarity. 
The question is, how would you describe a person who lacks moral clarity? Lost. Well, that's true. It's not <laughs> the word true. I'm looking for, though. <laughs> Maybe Thank you get for playing your game. Lacking in God's knowledge or the knowledge of God. All true. A snowflake. But here's the answer. Moral confusion. So what is the opposite of moral clarity? Moral confusion. Very good. When we return, we will take questions from our listeners. This is Jesus and the Meteorologist. There are citizens in Tennessee working to reclaim the practice of self-governance in our state and ensure that a constitutional, Republican form of government is preserved to future generations. We are Tennessee Stands. Do you want to get off the sidelines and learn how to stand for liberty in your community? Join us at TennesseeStands.org and on social media at Tennessee Stands. Welcome back to Jesus and the Meteorologists, or what really happens next. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and I'm your host. All right, so this is the part of the program where we take questions from our audience. As a reminder, if you have any questions from this week's program that you would like us to address in next week's episode, please submit your questions to questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com. And I'll spell that again because it's a new address. Questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com. I-C-E-B-E-R-G-S-N-O-T-S-N-O-W-F-L-A-K-E-S.com. Questions at icebergsnotsnowflakes.com. And we'll do our best to respond on a future episode. Okay, so during the break, a question came in from a listener. And um, it may sound redundant, but I I think I know why I'm going to go ahead and answer. Put on my spectacles here. Question is, what do you mean that you can't have moral clarity without knowing God? So that would suggest to me that maybe we were not clear in our first section. (laughs) Pardon the Kind of punny, right? Maybe you were. Yeah. Wasn't clear about clarity. All right, so let's reestablish the, the connection between these pieces. So moral courage definition is the commitment to act on knowing what is true, right? And we gave the example about the employee. If you found out the employee was stealing, right, you have knowledge, and knowledge brings with it culpability, mm-hmm. right? So once you've established that, now you have a duty to act. Moral courage is, in that instance, would be firing the employee for the reasons we talked about. Okay, so that's moral courage. And then we said, how does one have moral courage? Well, you can't have moral courage without knowing what is true. If, you, if what you believe is not true, you certainly can't have moral courage because then you're acting on false premises. And we couldn't call that courage. We could, might call that stupidity or ignorance, but not mm-hmm. courage, right? Okay, so then the question is, how do you know... Let me read it again. What do you mean that you can't have moral clarity without knowing God? So this gets to the fundamental question that all unbelievers, it's, it, we get back to our Phineas and Ferb. An unbeliever will claim that he can see and know anything he sees and knows without reference to God, right? Because moral clarity, in this, in this regard, moral clarity is, is knowing what is true, right? Mm-hmm. And so the questioner seems to have a problem with understanding or or maybe we were not clear enough explaining why it is so important and why it is um, undisputable that you can't know what is true without reference to God. 
And how we explain that goes back to our intro. When we say it is impossible to know things without reference to God, we don't mean that people all the time don't act as if they're not making reference to God. The distinction we're making is that whether or not they admit it, they are making reference to God. An atheist, for example, will go into a um, lab and look for a cure for cancer. But what the atheist cannot do in that instance is, is tell us why, according to the atheist worldview, he should expect scientific experiments to happen with regularity, right? You have to depend upon the uniformity of matter when you conduct any experiment. Otherwise, your experiment isn't going to be reliable. Mm. Well, we have an answer in our worldview. As Christians, we can explain why things act in an organized, orderly fashion because God holds everything together by the counsel of his will. But the atheist relies on those things and simply pretends that, oh, these things just happen, right? Well, that's not an answer. That's an excuse. That's, a, that's an assertion. If we, if we just said to the, to the atheist, well, God just happened, God just is, the atheist would say, I want proof, right? So we demand the same proof from the atheist, which is according to the atheist worldview, how do you explain what you're doing? So when we say, let me read the question once again, what do we mean when we say that you cannot have moral clarity? In other words, you cannot know what is true without knowing God. We're saying that nothing would be intelligible without knowing God. And people operate all the time on this basis of knowing God, but just not admitting that they know God. People do it all the time. It's the example that Cornelius Van Til used to give is that a child sits on his grandfather's lap and slaps him in the face, right? In other words, God provides the entire order upon which the world operates from in, in sense of nature, right? Sun up and sun down. We have 24-hour days. We have regular seasons. We know that H2O is always water, right? We know the force of gravity works, obviously, in certain areas. All of these things that we depend upon are things that God gives us. But according to an unbeliever who says there is no God— Let's, let's assume for the moment it's an atheist. There's a, there's a hundred different false beliefs, thousands of false beliefs. But focusing on the atheist point of view for a moment, the atheist says in his worldview, there is no God. And yet he relies upon all of these orderly things to make his defense against the existence of God. Mm -hmm. right? He'll say, well, science proves this. Well, the Christian worldview is the only thing that provides the preconditions to the intelligibility of the scientific method. Why would you proceed with any kind of scientific experiments unless everything was held together? Now, this doesn't mean that the world rejoices and says, aha, I love the fact that your God holds things together, or I agree with the fact. But we're talking here about objective truth. Can we give an answer? We do have an answer. The unbeliever doesn't like the answer, but it is philosophically coherent and consistent. Why is it held together? Because God holds it together. The world says, I don't like that God. Well, that doesn't make it untrue, right? A person can say, I don't like broccoli. Well, that doesn't mean broccoli doesn't exist. It just means the person doesn't like broccoli. So hopefully that answers um, the questioners or gives a little more context for the questioner. Um, I can't know because the questioner is not is not here in the room with us. So I, I'll have to trust that I've made that clear. And if not, we'll get further questions and hopefully be able to maybe enter into a debate with an unbeliever one time down the road where we can have this discussion. Well, that's all the time we have today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again to our icebergs, our producer, Rachel, and to all of our listeners and supporters. 
In the never-ending battle for hearts and minds, we aim to find and develop young men and women who, like the men of Issachar, understand the times and who know what to do. And how can we know what to do unless we believe what is true? My name is Kevin Kukaji, and you've been listening to Jesus and the Meteorologists.